Have you ever encountered a book or a video or a documentary or a person who just reshapes your entire idea of culture or reality itself? So the origin of consciousness in the breakdown in the bicameral mind was one of those books for me. And the way that I found that book, which is a 1970s book by Julian Jaynes, was through an interview with Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan is an even greater source of world or worldview reshaping, in my opinion. When I read Marshall McLuhan's Understanding Media, which was written in 1963, I was trying to put the pieces together of what it meant for reality itself and my worldview for at least a month. I highly recommend reading that. Marshall McLuhan was a Canadian intellect. He was a professor at the University of Toronto, and he had this novel media or technology theory that essentially technology is an extension of who we are. And I talk about both of these people, McLuhan's ideas and Julian Jaynes' ideas, with Marcel Coston, who I interview in this podcast. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, this podcast was actually recorded about eight months ago. So listening back is kind of interesting. I think I've learned a lot conversationally. So forgive pauses or maybe a lack of through line in the concept. Uh, I think this is a good introduction. Marcel just put out a book and I definitely recommend checking that out to dive further into these, but you definitely have to read the origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind because it really puts into perspective that our version of identity or ego in the literate world or most of the developed world is not new. Well, sorry, it's very new. It's not old. Uh, it's only about 3,000 to 5,000 years old, at least as far as uh, the mainstream goes. The argument is essentially, this is what McLuhan puts out there, that literacy or learning to write with a phonetic alphabet created our form of I relationship to the world. Uh, the individualism that we're so familiar with and that we definitely value highly in America um, and, you know, kind of was bolstered in the Renaissance and uh, continues to this day. So I'll talk a little bit more about the McLuhan stuff uh, at the end because I don't think we got deep enough into that during the actual conversation. Um, but yeah, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Marcel and I hope Marcel continues to be a powerful voice in this arena of the bicameral mind and the changing of consciousness. Welcome. I am here with Marcel Kostin. Hey, Marcel. Thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. Yeah, thank you. 
the executive director and founder of the Julian Jaynes Society, working on uh, a book right now and really excited to kind of dive into this book right here, the original, the origin of consciousness in the breakdown of the bicameral mind and how that led to uh, all, all these things manifesting in your life. So um, let's start with the theory, James's theory in 1976 um, of kind of the development of modern consciousness. Uh, how, how in your words do you kind of formulate for the general public uh, James's theory on, on how our modern consciousness developed over the last, let's call it 5,000 years? Well, one of the things that Julian Jaynes, uh, who was a psychologist at Princeton uh, University, um, he taught there for 30 years, uh, at roughly, and died in 1997. Um, his book came out in early 77, and one of the things he started doing in lectures after that was presenting his ideas as four distinct hypotheses. And the first is that consciousness is based on language. And one of the key things to understanding James's theory is understanding precisely how he defines consciousness. And he gets into a lot of specifics in the book, uh, different features of consciousness. But the easiest way for people to understand it uh, for now is he's talking about that which is introspectable. So the things that we can introspect in our, in our mind, uh, think about the past, reflect uh, on things we did, and plan for the future, those kind of things. He calls it an analog eye, narratizing in a mind space. And he explains in a lot of detail in the book that he's not talking about things like sense perception, just visual perception, things like that we share with all animals, uh, things like learning. Uh, those types of things uh, are outside of James's definition of consciousness. And he felt that language was necessary, specifically metaphorical language, to build up this inner mental world. So that's that's his first hypothesis in a nutshell. Yeah, so, okay, so it's interesting that you say that the sense perception is not integral. Um, and one is like the metaphor of the I, like E-Y-E, as it relates to, you know, the capital I. Um, so my first thought is duality. That's like the first thing that pops into my mind. It's like our modern consciousness requires a duality. It's almost like, um, you know, narcissist reflection or something. So it's almost like you have to like meta is the concept. You almost need to extend a self, like a metaphor. So does this create an imagination? Does the is the imagination only possible because of the right, modern conception of consciousness? We we create this uh, container metaphor that we situate our mind in, and this is built up through metaphors of physical space. So as we think about physical space around us, uh, it, it creates through language, 
an inner mental life where we can see ourselves moving around virtually. So he talks about an analog I and then a metaphor me, which is a third person view of yourself. So you have a first person view of yourself and a third person view of yourself. And these things are built up through metaphorical language. And um, an example I give in uh, the new book I'm working on is uh, a child that, that I know who, who has very limited language ability. And um, I think it helps people understand this. He, he doesn't seem to have some of the features of consciousness that Jane's talks about. You can, for example, hold up two Halloween costumes in front of him and he can express a preference for one or the other. But if you ask him, what would you like to be next Halloween? He can't understand that and he can't go into a, into a mind space and go into the future and visualize uh, those kinds of things. You, you, you know, so he's living in, in, a, in the present moment. Uh, pretty much all the time. And this is in line with what we see with uh, cases of children who are raised without language. And um, developmental psychologists are looking at this more now and studying the development of consciousness in children as they learn language and seeing these different features emerge uh, as they progress. And so it's just important to, to understand all of the rest of James's theory, to understand he's talking about introspection and not things like sense perception when he talks about consciousness. And that this has a, a recent historical origin. It doesn't go back millions of years. It's not the, the consciousness that James is talking about is not present in animals, that uh, they have communication systems they don't have the kind of sophisticated metaphorical language that was necessary for us to develop this inner mental world. Okay. So I, I got a little ahead of myself then. So what are the other three um, key concepts to James's theory of, or conception of consciousness? So the next idea is that, um, is the dating of when did, this type of modern introspectable mind space emerge. And he dates this to roughly 3000 years ago. And it's important to emphasize that it varies uh, from culture to culture. And we see a much later date, for example, in the Americas than we do in the civilizations around the Mediterranean, like Greece, Egypt, and um, also Mesopotamia. But um, he relies on evidence, linguistic evidence, as words, for example, in ancient Greek evolve, their meanings change. So words that initially meant things like vision later come to mean conscious mind. And the idea is that as the meaning and definitions of these words change, we can track the psychological changes that were happening in these cultures. And he also compares and contrasts the Iliad, and, the Iliad and the Odyssey, for example. And in the Iliad, we see this older action-oriented mentality that uh, is 
devoid of introspection. And it's important to note that the Iliad uh, also evolved over time and they were, there were later editions, but in the older layers, it's completely action orient, oriented and there's no, no sense of an inner mind space or introspection. Whereas in the Odyssey, it's full of introspection and things like deceit and all of these things that we see coming later. So the second idea is, is dating this transition to the modern mind to about 1500 BC. And then the other two, just to, I feel like. Yeah, to round it out. Um, the third key idea is, well, if consciousness is learned and it's learned through metaphorical language, it's not biologically innate. It's not something that just evolved as brains became more complex, as is sometimes assumed. Um, if, it, if it's learned and it has a historical beginning, perhaps just 3,000 years ago, roughly, the question then is, well, what, what came before that? What was the mentality that humans were operating under prior to modern consciousness that allowed them to accomplish so many things, so many complex things? And there he, he noted the historical evidence for something that he called the bicameral mind. And that was uh, a mentality that was in the absence of consciousness based on auditory hallucinations. And this is a little bit of a difficult thing for people to grasp at first, but the idea is that as language developed over tens of thousands of years, beginning perhaps 70,000 years ago, the brain began to use language as a tool to convey experience from one brain hemisphere to the other. And this was in the absence of introspection. So if some novel event occurred, the brain would just use language from the non-dominant hemisphere language areas to convey information to the dominant hemisphere uh, via language across the connection between the hemispheres called the corpus callosum. So it was just language was being used not just to communicate with others, but by the brain to communicate uh, from one hemisphere to the other. And there's a tremendous amount of evidence for this that was completely overlooked by historians and classicists. And we see, going back to the Iliad again, in the place of introspection, a god appears and tells the characters what to do. So uh, the ancient world is filled with gods and people are always looking to the gods for guidance. And this, James believes, all came out of the bicameral mind. We see them, the early civilizations and just small uh, groups even, burying the dead as though they were still alive and feeding the dead as though they were still alive. The idea being that they were still hearing their voice after death. And we see uh, things like idols throughout the ancient world, especially in Mesopotamia, that were likely sort of hallucinatory aids. And it's, it's a little bit difficult for people to grasp because we're so conditioned 
in modern culture to see hallucinations as something that are rare, uh, a sign of mental illness, uh, and and something that uh, couldn't possibly uh, have such an integral role in in human mentality in the past. But a lot of those are misconceptions, and we see now we've learned that uh, hallucinations are found even today throughout uh, societies worldwide, and they're much more common than was previously known. And among uh, some people who hallucinate today, their hallucinations are not just random voices, but they are very often behavioral commands. And um, so these are vestiges of the bicameral mind that are still with us today. His fourth key idea is his neurological model for the bicameral mind. So the bicameral mind is a psychological hypothesis with this God side directing a man side based on the two hemispheres of the brain. And the neurological model was his speculation for what might be going on in the brain. And earlier I was kind of alluding to this with the the two language areas of the brain. And he reasoned that if we have in a right-handed person, most of our language ability in the left hemisphere, then what are the language areas of the right hemisphere doing? And if these are the only areas of the brain that we know to be able to process language, then perhaps hallucinations are being generated in these non-dominant hemisphere language areas. And perhaps this is what gives them their alien quality. So we, ha we don't associate those voices with our sense of self for some reason. For some reason, our sense of self is associated with our dominant hemisphere language areas. And this was just conjecture, um, just something he deduced, but the technology wasn't available to test that at the time. But as the years went on uh, and new technology was available, this uh, was basically uh, confirmed that he was uh, correct about that uh, and that uh, this is exactly what we see happening in the brain when people hallucinate. So to be clear, what we're seeing in brain scans is on the right hemisphere, essentially corresponding activity as as would be um, language activity in the left hemisphere, which is what we're used to in our kind of, you know, like maybe a lot of people would come to call this like your ego or your identity is kind of tied to the left hemisphere and especially the language center because that's how we narrate our yeah. lives. If And then hallucinations, and it seems like auditory, like uh, is the most common has associated activity in kind of the reflection, that same area on the right. Is that kind That's of correct. In a, in a right-handed person, it gets a little complicated. If someone's left-handed, they might have their language areas more evenly distributed between the hemispheres or reversed. But yeah, if you do a brain scan of someone uh, processing language or speaking, typically in a right-handed person, you'll see activity in the left temporal lobe. And uh, in cases where people have frequent hallucinations, they can do a brain scan, have the person in one sort of famous study press a button on a joystick right when the hallucination occurs and they scan their brain and they see this same type of activity, but in the non-dominant hemisphere. 
And so it was just exactly as Jane's had predicted. And there's been many, many, many studies since this first one that came out in uh, 1999 uh, confirming these findings. And any type of brain research is complex. There's always going to be anomalies and, and uh, studies that show different things. But the consensus that's emerged is that typically this is what's taking place. And another interesting finding along these lines is that the more people process language just in their left hemisphere, normal language, the less likely they are to hallucinate. And again, you're right, it's auditory verbal hallucinations that we're talking about. Not visual hallucinations are a little bit different. Um, for people whose normal language ability is more evenly distributed in both hemispheres, they have a greater likelihood of experiencing auditory verbal hallucinations. So that's another line of evidence that's a little separate from the fMRI studies. So those okay. are the four key ideas. Yeah, yeah, it's super interesting stuff. And um, how I came across the work, and this ties in, is I was listening to old Marshall McLuhan interviews. Mm -hmm. And um, he's someone, everyone wanted to know, what do you think is going to happen next? Because Marshall McLuhan's ideas about technology kind of as they relate to um, how we relate to the world, how they affect our consciousness essentially, um, has a lot of predictive value. His, his, you know, so instantly without even skipping a beat, he said, we're headed back to the bicameral mind. That's what he thought about TV and like the internet and, you know, the stuff he kind of saw coming. And so I was like, where have I heard that term before? So I Googled it and then someone did like a YouTube video breakdown of, of Julian Jane's mm -hmm. idea. So, so I listened to the book and then purchased the, like a physical copy and their ideas tie together very interestingly. And okay, just to tie this back to culture a little bit, uh, just to kind of prove that we are very left hemisphere dominated in Western culture and we can get into like how that developed. So obviously the left hemisphere controls the right side of your body. I just looked it up. 90% of Americans are right-handed. Um, mm -hmm. So, like, and, and I know there's like a certain percent of people, like 20% or less that do experience auditory hallucinations. And there's kind of like a community built around it because mm -hmm. it is a surprisingly large number of people. So this is not super uncommon, although it sounds, you know, it, it sounds alarming that people have auditory hallucinations because of how our culture is set up, but it is a common thing. It's just validating what we're about to dive into here. I'm, I'm going to kind of assume that people either have access to these ideas or they're going to look into it because I kind of want to get into implications and stuff. But um, how familiar are, familiar are you with McLuhan first off? Or do you think there's a connection between the two? What's your kind of... Not terribly familiar. I know his, his sort of key idea about um, how people receive information becomes part of the message. Uh, but I'm not. Um, yeah. Not not. I haven't delved okay. into his work in depth. No worries. So um, his whole thing is senses, communication technologies, 
relate to different sense organs. Every technology is an extension of a, of a part of your body. So the radio is extending the voice, and in a sense, it's in turn extending the listener's ear, uh, where TV is extending, um, he would argue, kind of your, your whole nervous system. It's more of like, a, he called it audio tactile. So it's like your sense of touch and your sense of um, hearing. And he had various reasons for making these like kind of hard to test distinctions. But um, he essentially said that the first technology is the phonetic alphabet, the first communication technology. It's the first extension of our mm -hmm. communication. Do you see kind of a connection? We'll just we'll we'll start here, I guess. Do you see a connection between written language and the development of this modern um, modern self concept or or um, sense of consciousness? Right. Yeah. Uh, language and writing were key factors in what Jane's believed caused this transition from the bicameral mentality to modern subjective consciousness. And so we had the development of more and more complex metaphorical language over time, and then the development of writing, which uh, was, was definitely, there's definitely a key factor here when cultures go from oral culture to literate culture. And Jane's definitely looks at writing as, as another factor in this transition. Mm -hmm. So McLuhan, his whole thing was that the written language, phonetics specifically, so like obviously in ancient Egypt, you had cuneiform and hieroglyphs and, um, and those are were visual symbolic languages, which is different from phonetic where essentially each symbol represents a sound rather than kind of a, an entire concept. So that's, the fact that each symbol rec uh, represents a sound means that you have to you have to kind of absorb the entire vernacular. Like there's nothing inherent about the mm -hmm. language, and there's kind of like a there's kind of a dividing, like a a rough cultural dividing of all these concepts because you just have to take it at face value. But his thing was that um, it makes it a more visual experience because everything is laid out let's just use western concepts for now the phonetic language written is left to right top to bottom so everything becomes this kind of logical this idea follows this idea kind of a thing which is like i think it was part two of james's idea you were talking about is it creates this concept of past and future everything mm -hmm. is kind of timelined out Okay, so that's where it's interesting for me because if it's a visual thing, it's interesting that what gets created in our modern conception of um, self-consciousness is an analog I. You right. know, it's like, you know, capital I or, or E-Y-E. Do you think... Do you think that the imagination of someone with a modern self-concept or a modern consciousness like let's call it modern western consciousness do you think the imagination of us is different than a bicameral human or do you think it's just kind of 
just kind of concept of future and past like that's the only difference well imagination is a is a another um tricky concept uh and it's relation to consciousness but there is uh, probably a strong correlation between imagination and, and introspection and the bicameral person wouldn't have imagination in our modern sense of the word they would have visual hallucinations and auditory hallucinations but they wouldn't have imagination as we think of it as um imagining yourself driving right now or uh playing some kind of sport. Uh, a lot of athletes now use visualization techniques to improve their athletic performance. That's something that's becoming more popular and that's a type of imagination. And people might say, well, what is the evidence or how would you know? Well, one of the interesting things uh, in all of this is that the transition that we see that dreams went through roughly around the same time frame that Jane's talks about for the emergence of subjective consciousness. In the oldest texts, dreams, uh, most people would think they were always the same as they are now. It turns out not to be the case. People's dreams were very much um, a reflection of the waking bicameral experience. They were like two sides of the same coin. So people, instead of seeing themselves in our modern conscious dreams, we see ourselves engaging in activities in other places. They, that's using imagination, consciousness operating during sleep is basically our modern dreams. In ancient dreams, people saw themselves just asleep in bed and visited by a god who would then issue a command uh, or a dead ancestor. So it was, it was very similar to the waking bicameral experience. We see the same type of um, bicameral dreams or visitation dreams, they're often called in preliterate societies. And interestingly, children go through this same transition as they learn language and develop consciousness. They, they have dreams of just being in their own bed initially, and later over time, they start to, their dreams start to take on these aspects of consciousness where they imagine themselves in other locations. Uh, and what's interesting in all this is the brain is constantly forming a narrative, both in our waking state, our inner dialogue is constantly fitting things into these narratives. And in sleep, the brain is constantly taking memories and events of the day and even aspects of the environment. If it's in a cold, you're in a cold room or something and fitting all these things into a narrative that becomes uh, a dream. So these are some of the ways that we can date this transition in history by looking at these historical uh, points of evidence. Okay, so this whole, Jane's whole concept is, is, is wildly interesting. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if, we're, if we're getting to the meat of it. It's like, where do you start with it? <laughs> this topic um it's like all you can do kind of right is discuss the differences between what a bicameral person might understand and and how we kind of 
formulate it now. Um, would would you say that's accurate or? Well, what James usually how he presented the theory is to talk about first the things that are not involved in consciousness that we assume consciousness is involved in to really cut down consciousness to the specific uh, definition that he presents and to show that these broad definitions are mistaken, that all kind of learning takes place non-consciously. And it's a key thing to understand. If you're learning typing or a sport or a musical instrument, uh, much of the learning takes place outside of any type of introspection. And to use a really simple example, he talks about uh, these studies that were done on introspection about 100 years ago, and they would have someone hold two weights, one in each hand, and try to determine which one is heavier. And the answer just comes instantly. And you can't really introspect on that at all. Just you instantly know which one is heavier. Or he presents a series of geometric shapes, for example, a triangle, a circle, a triangle, a circle, and you're asked which one comes next, there's nothing to introspect on. You simply know right away. And so your brain is doing all of these kind of things um, non-consciously. And even language, we're not consciously introspecting on the words that we choose. We just form an idea of what we want to say and everything just happens automatically. And so kind of cutting consciousness down to size is is one of the important things he would first explain. Um, all of this evidence for the bicameral mentality is is another important aspect. And so much of ancient history simply doesn't make sense without the bicameral mentality. Why were all these cultures obsessed with gods? Well, and why were there so many gods, you know, hundreds and sometimes thousands of gods? And it starts to make much more sense if we start to see that ancient religion and this experience of having a close personal relationship with gods is very different than our modern concept of religion. And it, it was based on direct experience. And a friend of mine once put it that the experience of gods in the ancient world is how someone might experience a, a high school football coach. They're with you all the time. They're telling you what to do. They're, they're directing your action. And it's not this abstract concept of a faraway, distant God that we have today. And we can see this transition start to take place in history, where first the gods are always present. And then as the bicameral mentality breaks down and, and uh, modern consciousness emerges to deal with the kind of social complexity and changes that were happening at that time, people's auditory hallucinations become suppressed. And then we see this distress and anguish that the gods aren't telling them what to do anymore. And um, they're trying to come up with all of these new ways to discern the will of the gods. And so things that we just take for granted, like prayer, suddenly start to emerge. The concept of angels is something that becomes new in history as these messengers between people and the gods that previously weren't necessary. Um, 
and these like evil gods uh, like demons and things like divination, oracles, prophets, all of this emerges around this time during this fascinating transition from bicameral mentality to consciousness. And really none of this makes sense without James's theory. It's all things that we've been documenting and have been discussed, but they don't quite make much sense unless there was a profound psychological transition that took place during this period. So those are some of the things that James would discuss in his lectures to kind of flesh out uh, his ideas. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned 70,000 years as kind of a, a potential estimate of the development of language, which plays a huge role in this um, metacognition or this, this ability to create a metaphorical analog eye. Um, I guess, first off, do you, do you know why 70,000 is kind of like a potential timeline? I know these things are really hard to. Well, the origin, across. and we're talking about here, the very earliest beginnings of language. So simple calls and, you know, warning cries and things like that. And it's important to emphasize that the dating of the earliest origin of language is highly, highly speculative. And people talk okay. about it as if they have some firm idea based on anatomical changes that were taking place in the larynx and things like that. Um, changes that were potentially happening in the brain where they can see from fossilized evidence the beginnings of the uh, areas of the brain that were important in language were developing and they're speculating that language was then uh, occurring. But Jaynes argues pretty persuasively for a later uh, date for the development of language, you know, 50 to 75,000 years ago for this early beginning because of the behaviors uh, that we were seeing. And people were still essentially leaving the dead where they fell, he talks about, or sometimes maybe even um, eating the dead. And it wasn't until much later that we saw the first burials and things like that, that maybe that person at that time had a name and people could start to relate to them in ways that they couldn't before they had this linguistic development. Uh, so when people talk about language, I saw something the other day, someone saying something about a million years, it's really just pure speculation. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence that it was much later than that. And um, one of the things that comes up is, uh, you know, in these traditional, broader, vaguer definitions of consciousness, people talk about the emergence of cave art as a hallmark of the, the beginnings of the modern mind. And um, this has been totally debunked. Uh, Jane's first talked about how cave art should not be perceived as modern art in the conscious modern sense of people sitting down to create an artistic work. Um, these were likely uh, visual hallucinations of the animals they were 
hunting uh, rendered onto the cave walls. They were deep in the caves, not where people were likely to see them. New renderings were done right over the old ones with no regard uh, for what was there before. The people are almost always drawn as just like stick figures. And um, a psychologist a number of years ago named Nicholas Humphrey did a, uh, wrote an article about an autistic uh, three or four year old girl named Nadia who had almost no language ability. And she was drawing these beautiful drawings that were highly reminiscent of early cave art. And so if a three-year-old non-linguistic child certainly doesn't have the features of consciousness that James was talking about, is able to create these uh, artistic drawings, it really uh, creates a problem for this idea that cave art was a sign of the beginning of the modern mind. And as she developed language, her artistic ability actually diminished. So it, it's cave art could be seen as almost, uh, in that sense, uh, evidence for the absence of the modern mind. And um, so these are more likely photographic images in their mind that they were simply rendering. And um, art in general, uh, even today, uh, is, is not something that consciousness is involved in. We don't introspect, it's just a creative process. And there are uh, art autistic individuals that can recreate entire city skylines from, from memory. And there's really no role of modern consciousness in that mm -hmm. process. Okay, I have a, a couple things to try to connect there and then I want to see what you think of it. Um, so obviously like the million years that someone might have um, speculated, I think comes from that they say that anatomically modern humans have been around for one to two million years. It's kind of like the new idea that we've existed in this like physical form for about that long. So that, that kind of makes sense. What's interesting to me is that, that you and Jane's and others are putting it between that 50,000, you know, 75,000 years ago, because I've also heard a similar timeline for shamanism, which is an interesting um, an interesting thing to emerge together, I guess. Um, and so I, and this is what I kind of want to get your thoughts on because uh, I don't know if you know who Terrence McKenna is, but he had this idea of the origins of kind of not consciousness, although he he was familiar with James's book and found it interesting. He thought that language and kind of our culture, which is kind of what the same argument, he just didn't use the word consciousness, developed potentially from the, like, the consistent exposure to, like, magic mushrooms was mm -hmm. his theory, that some of these ancient peoples would have experienced uh, mushrooms and they would have had some uh, adaptive benefits. They would have had some increased visual acuity, which would have helped with hunting and survival, and uh, increased uh, sexual drive, sexual activity. And then at higher doses, there would have been this ecstatic sh kind of shamanic experience, um, which would catalyze things like glossolalia, which is just, you know, making random mouth noises, essentially, and possibly eventually utilizing those um, 
mouth noises to create meaning is kind of his that was kind of his you know and obviously it's it's kind of speculative because it's it's very hard to to prove any of that stuff it, you can kind of make an argument of what the climate would be like in a certain area at a certain time but like that's about as as much as you can kind of speculate um so the thing about the cave art is interesting and and I don't know enough about it to say that yes it 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 should be a sign of modern consciousness evolving or no it shouldn't but um the fact that it's deep in the caves show that is very likely a spiritual um practice that people were going in to accomplish because why would they go that far into the cave to begin with so like in greek traditions um like pythagoras for example like the pythagorean theorem and you know the great pythagoras um he had like a sensory deprivation kind of chamber that he built for himself and that's where he would go you know in our concept he would go into his imagination and he would um see the connections between these concepts like geometry and you mm-hmm. know um all these different things so i guess what i'm curious to get your idea like your thoughts on is um do you think uh entheogens like magic mushrooms could have had something to do with the development of language uh let's start with that i i don't i i i'm hesitant to uh really say one way strongly or the other i'm skeptical of that idea um i just don't know that it would have been um widespread enough but what's really interesting to me about the different hallucinogens and we see the use um, widely in in a lot of different cultures uh, even today and then even of course our modern culture um, is we seem to have this innate longing to get back to um, at least temporarily a hallucinogenic state. Uh, we want to often um, diminish consciousness, which can be, you know, it, it, we've had tremendous uh, benefits from developing consciousness, but it also has downsides. And a lot of um, the different aspects that we see in mental illness are problems with consciousness, whether it's um, in depression, the um, the internal narratization uh, is telling a story in a very negative way. Uh, things like anxiety is is consciousness playing on fear, which is James talks about these two tiers of emotions: basic emotions and then conscious emotions. So fear and then anxiety, uh, anger, which is sort of just an innate reaction, and then consciousness would you'd have hatred and things like that. So a lot of times people are trying to get away from conscious thought and experience hallucinogenic experiences. And I see it more, you know, if we're looking at it through the lens of James's theory as another vestige of the bicameral mind, that there's so many ways to elicit hallucinations that not people aren't always aware of. And it really suggests that it was a kind of foundational aspect of our psychology and not this rare 
pathological uh, thing. And so one of the things that um, we might touch on is all of the new evidence for the theory that's that's come along since James published his book. But one of the aspects of that is all the different ways we now know that people can elicit hallucinations. And so one of the things that would have, have has become popular is these sensory deprivation floaty tanks. And often people will start to hallucinate in those. People that are in solitary confinement for any length of time usually will start to hallucinate. Um, high altitude climbers, uh, all of this has been studied and published, often experience hallucin hallucinations. Um, wilderness explorers, people in combat, people in high stress environments, elderly after the death of a spouse, um, children, of course, people often hear about their imaginary companions. Those not always, but often involve hallucinations. Um, and then again, the hallucinogenic drugs. So uh, even sleep deprivation, if you stay up for a couple of nights straight, you'll pretty likely begin to hallucinate. So uh, it seems to be a pretty foundational aspect to our psychology. And I think people's interest in, interest in hallucinogens is an interest in uh, eliciting external guidance. And um, we seem to have this innate predisposition. Again, we take it for granted. It's sort of immersed. We're immersed in it, so we don't really think about it. But why are we always looking for uh, the, the answers to everything from some type of uh, external source or a higher power? And... Um, James would say it's because of this predis predisposition that we had from the bicameral mind where we were uh, experiencing the commands of what we interpreted as gods. Um, so people will long for these experiences to have you know, profound insights from their subconscious mind, um, giving them guidance or insight. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't value. And, you know, there's been some recent books and studies done on the um, value of different hallucinogens and even the treatment of things like PTSD and depression and anxiety. And I, they're really beginning to explore that more now. But um, looking at it through the lens of James's theory, uh, you can see why people might be drawn to those kind of experiences. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like we're heading back into a more bicameral way of being, or do you see that in, in the near future? Well, it was a frequent question after James's lectures. Um, if, if consciousness is learned, if it was developed perhaps just 3,000 years ago, and it's something that we actually teach to each successive generation, in a process that's it's completely invisible to us. It just happens naturally um, through literacy and through training um, children to think about uh, the future, the past, and things like that. Um, well, where is consciousness going from here? And it's, it's very difficult uh, or impossible to predict, but uh, one, one possibility is that as we begin to understand consciousness more precisely as something that is learned through language and is not biologically innate, we can then realize that we can improve 
features of consciousness in ourselves and in, in teaching it to others. So perhaps we'll develop better ways of teaching the different aspects and features of consciousness to children or teach them more universally across cultures. Um, the other argument would be that things like social media um, and uh, a decrease in, in literacy and things like that could over time, also technology, the more technology starts to do things for us, the, more, the less we have to think for ourselves, we could see a diminishment of consciousness. And it just it also depends on the individual. Uh, an example of this is if we look at the, the Greek bards that performed the Iliad and they, had, they would memorize the Iliad and, and sing the poem. Um, it would be very, very difficult for someone today, I think, to be able to accomplish that type of memorization because we simply don't require it anymore. And as people begin using calculators all the time, uh, it, it perhaps diminished the ability for some people to just quickly do math in their head. So the more technology does for us, the, the more there's a chance that we can rely and uh, develop our own consciousness less. But a complete return to bicamerality or the bicameral mentality, I, I prefer to say, I think would really require a complete societal collapse, some type of almost post-apocalyptic situation, maybe after a, a much more severe pandemic or a nuclear war where there's just pockets of uh, society left and a complete collapse in education and things like that. Um, you know, I think uh, something like that, we would need something of that magnitude to uh, regress back to bicameral mentality. And one other point I just want to mention, when you're talking about things like cave art, consciousness, the modern mind, and all these things, one of the things that people don't think much about is when they say, oh, we developed a modern mind 50,000 years ago. Well, why was there this long gap then uh, with very limited development of technologies and things beyond stone tools, which again, tool making, you don't need consciousness, uh, it can be simply observed and, and learned non-consciously. Uh, but then we, we go up to around 800 BC in Greece, and a little more recently, and suddenly we see this cognitive explosion. We see the birth of philosophy, science, mathematics, history, all of theater, all of these things suddenly just exploding onto the scene. And it really suggests that there was some type of major transition taking place at that time and not 40 or 50,000 years earlier than that. Uh, and, and this idea that history was kind of invented and Herodotus, the first historian, came along around this time. And, and there just was this emergence for the first time in historical thinking and this idea that we can think about things other, you know, outside of our immediate experience. So I read in a book once that around 
400 BC or something like that, and you just mentioned 800 BC in, in Greek, that the myth, like the general myth of the Greeks actually shifted from, like there's this nature god that was kind of, um, what do you call it, hermaphroditic. It was man and female, and it represented nature. It was kind of the tree of life symbol. It stretched from heaven to earth. And um, the myth shifted to uh, Zeus, and I think it's like Athena. It's like the god of reason, whichever the, whichever the god of reason is, um, killed that nature god together. So it's like Zeus slain nature like the the twin serpents that were you know we've had since antiquity um but only with the help of reason and this is like something joseph campbell documented so the person Mm -hmm. who wrote this like had a a side note and it was joseph campbell's like occidental you know mythology or whatever um i guess what what's your what's your take on that i mean i think it kind of comes out in the wash in terms of that's exactly what james was saying with with the iliad yeah it's similar to we see a lot of these parables for the breakdown of the bicameral mind and another is um the story of the garden of eden where man eats from the tree of knowledge and suddenly has introspective self-awareness and evil you know and deception enters into the world and so the story of the garden of eden is a is a can be seen as as a a parable for for the breakdown of bicameral mentality and in all these cultures there's this theme of a lost golden age uh where you know we we were in direct connection with the gods and we're constantly trying to get back to that time and um it's something that's repeated in in many different cultures and the old testament uh is Another great way to um, investigate James's ideas, and it really is a document of this transition from bicameral mentality to consciousness. And in James's book, he compares one of the oldest prophets, Amos, who is just a illiterate sheep herder who experiences these possessed states, these trance states where he begins to hallucinate and prophesize to the much more recent books and prophets like Ecclesiastes, who is in every sense uh, a modern conscious philosopher type of person. And um, Brian McVeigh has recently published a book called The Psychology of the Bible, really looking at uh, the Bible as a record of this transition from bicameral mentality to consciousness. And another one is The Minds of the Bible by Rabbi James Cohn, who, who also talks about this same transition and, and looking at, at the Old and New Testaments from the perspective or through the lens of James's theory. Mm. So um, I guess as an experiment here, doing what the left brain does best and, and rationalizing, telling ourselves a story um, to make sense of our reality, do you have any thoughts or do any of the people you talk to through the Julian Jane Society have thoughts on what what is a potential story we can tell ourselves about why the breakdown 
of the bicameral mind may have occurred because it seems like if there's any if there's any redemption to be had in nature if there's any purpose to be and that we're not just like headed in you know in some downward spiral through this process of developing consciousness why might the historical process have been undergone as a nature experiment why might uh we have had to leave eden right so james points to a number of different possible factors and the bicameral mentality which again it evolved along with uh the development of language uh had different functions and one of these was what i previously mentioned it was transmitting information from one hemisphere to the other it also likely helped people stay focused on a task for longer periods of time. Uh, it had a function of providing social cohesion in these very hierarchical societies. Um, all of these early civilizations were very hierarchical in nature. And people would sometimes say, well, how could they have functioned with all these people hallucinating different voices? Well, we have to remember the kings and the top priests and clergy and the, the rulers were hallucinating the voices of the great gods, and those were dictating all of the important decisions of the civilization. And we see a lot of these hallucinations documented about where to build a temple, exactly how to build a temple. It was all dictated by the gods, and people can read about these things in, um, in the history books. And... Uh, so this was coming from the great gods. The average person would have a personal god and um, what was likely the Ka in, in Egypt, for example. And that would just direct their daily decisions. And if uh, an individual had some idea about, you know, the um, decisions of the group, if they were at a low place in the hierarchy, they just wouldn't be taken seriously the same way as happens today. So it was a very militaristic type of hierarchy uh, that was happening in these civilizations that allowed this to function. Um, then it, it worked up to a certain size. Uh, as societies grew in uh, number and complexity and began to uh, encounter other civilizations through migrations, through um, war, and uh, through natural disasters, we had society start to mingle, and um, it, it became no longer functional. And so I think all of these things were happening at the same time that language was developing in complexity. So it was almost like a seesaw effect where you had metaphorical language beginning to usher in these uh, first features of consciousness, which actually probably took place over many generations. And at the same time, societies growing in size and complexity where the bicameral mentality was simply no longer functional at that level. And so the voices slowly became suppressed and introspection became the new way of dealing with novel situations because much of behavior we have to remind ourselves then and even now is uh, instinctual 
or habitual. And people even today can go through much of their daily routine without introspection. Now we have this constant inner dialogue, but if you simply imagined turning that off, you could get up, get dressed, eat breakfast, and uh, you know drive to work uh, all without introspection. And so introspection even today makes up much less of our uh, mental life than we, we attribute it to. And because we're only conscious of what we're conscious of, we have this illusion that consciousness is involved in all mentality. And the example James gives of this is to imagine a flashlight looking around a dark room. And everywhere the flashlight turns, the room appears lit up. So it concludes that there's light everywhere. Well, because we're not conscious of what we're, what's outside of our consciousness, we mistakenly assume that consciousness is involved in all of our mentality. And these are difficult things to think about, but uh, James does a really brilliant job of explaining them in his book. And hopefully people will uh, read that for themselves if they're interested. Awesome. Yeah. Well put. Um, so practically speaking, language had to become what it became and it had to become more consistent across cultures as these cultures were bumping into each other in order to deal practically with the numbers of people trying to live together in harmony, essentially. And they had different systems of gods that were not compatible. And, you know, we hear stories uh, like the Tower of Babel and things like that. Uh, and, and other stories where the God, the voices of the gods start to become jumbled and confused and like the lines of communication uh, start breaking down. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good story to connect there. And arguably this is still happening um, or st- has happened, you know, fairly recently. Like Jesus seems to be kind of a continuation of like the Greek Dionysus seems to be like a combination of beliefs to, to kind of bring two societies together, essentially. Yeah, Jesus is um, interesting as a kind of reformer taking religion from the old uh, external uh, control of uh, Moses and things like that uh, and external commandments to this new introspective uh, idea that the kingdom of God is within you. So we can really see Jesus as a person who was reforming religion from a more bicameral type of religion to a more introspective type of religion. So it, it can all be looked at and it, it all starts to make a lot more sense um, when we look at these things, um, having first understood James's theory. Yeah. So as a, as a more, um, what's your thought on, on like a grand narrative idea that this like kind of, uh, breakdown of the bicameral mind into a introspective analog eye, our modern conception of, uh, consciousness that the purpose of it could be to develop technology to possibly like 
get life off earth or something like that. Do you kind of subscribe to that as a possibility or? Well, I see it as a, as an outcome. Um, I don't think it, 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 uh, is driven by a purpose. Um, but yeah, I think that technology, um, is part of the benefits of, of, um, modern consciousness, all of the de developing technologies that we've had over the past uh, 2000 years. Um, but like we said, there's, 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 there's negative aspects to this too. Uh, and uh, hopefully, you know, technology won't perhaps end human civilization, but um, it was certainly a, an outcome of the development of modern consciousness, uh, you know, this ability for the kind of um, engineering and technological innovation that wasn't possible before the development of the modern mind. Mm. So, so you think of it as more of like a random chance development that was practical for survival, rather than um, that there's some kind of greater purpose to this development of our version. Yeah, of I see it more as like a byproduct. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't think that there is a, like you said, a grand narrative or a, uh, some kind of purpose driving this process. Uh, I think, um, it's just unfolding as, as it, as it happens and, you know, where it's all going, I don't think anyone can say. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think for, okay, so going to survival, do you think that there is like a concern in, cause, cause how I see things developing, like I have a, a six month baby at home and if you think about it, um, literacy is going to become less and less important as more and more of our communication and our education can be done in a visual literally just through video and through mm -hmm. through audio there'll be less of a need to be like hey you need to learn how to read it's like why i can send a voice message like mm -hmm. a lot of people voice message each other in lieu of text messaging each other right um so the decreased maybe utility or necessity of of literacy do you see any potential let's just let's just assume like because that's kind of the trend like I'm pretty sure there's statistics that support that that's the trend declining literacy mm -hmm. let's just let's assume that that creates like more a larger percentage of the population that say has auditory hallucinations mm -hmm. um, do you see problems of manipulation and let's let's for the listener because I don't think we dove into this deep enough. People in during this breakdown period of the bicameral mind, there, um, like you said, there was hierarchies, and people would actually have a voice of like a god or a leader. They would have their leader's voice mm -hmm. in in their right hemisphere, and it would actually come through as a hallucination, and it would tell them what to do. It would tell them like, you know, pick up that rock, or it would tell them like, um, tackle that you know, chicken or something. Um, 
or or build a house or build mm-hmm. a you know build a platform people will come kind of a thing so these people would even have hallucinations of dead kings or dead mm-hmm. past past leaders right um and that would that had more of a volition than their own personal ego volition um that voice was more dictatorial than than their own you know ego voice well it would have been absent yeah there was no no ego uh for the bicameral person okay i thought it was i thought it was that there was like uh internal narrative but it was just like not as not as important or not as um driving okay so that was that was the internal volition so let's just say declining literacy rates, let's say now instead of 20% or less, it's 50% of the population that has auditory hallucinations. Do you see risk of like um, organizations or individuals creating um, creating internal volition for other people like i picture like a kid who looks up to like a rapper mm-hmm. and that that rapper dies and to them like that rapper is god mm-hmm. and now like a lot of these rappers are putting out albums posthumously like after they die do you and now we're also developing technology that allows you to upload a bunch of audio from a certain person and then synthesize fake audio that that person actually never said. Do you do you see like a risk there of half the population having this godlike voice of a deceased person they looked up to, and maybe a literate person kind of controlling the strings? There's certainly that risk, and um, one of the things I want to mention though is that. It, it's sort of an interesting idea that you proposed that we don't really know. Uh, I think it's a it's a little bit of a leap to say that a decline in literacy literacy today would necessarily usher in an increase in auditory hallucinations. Um, it's possible. I I don't know if that's been looked at. Um, certainly. Jane's talks about how the oracles, like the oracle at Delphi, for example, were often illiterate peasant girls who could more easily obtain these trance states and hallucinatory states. So there's certainly a relationship, but I don't know that we would necessarily see an increase in in bicameral mentality at this point. based solely on a decrease in literacy because our culture doesn't operate on those premises anymore. And James talks about this collective cognitive imperative. And what that really just means is the expectations of the culture that you're in. And so a this was all cultural. A child taken from ancient Mesopotamia or Egypt and raised in our culture would learn consciousness and a child taken from our culture and raised in their culture at that time would learn bicameral mentality. Um, We don't 
teach bicameral mentality, if we could talk about it that way, uh, in most of our culture. Now, there are pockets and certainly societies, uh, non-Western societies especially, that do emphasize uh, hallucinatory experiences around the world even today, and in certain religious groups, even in uh, American culture, things like speaking in tongues and um, communicating directly with with God is is taught and emphasized, and they even teach kind of like protocols to elicit these hallucinations. And um, the Stanford anthropologist Tanya Lerman, who uh, I interviewed for for the book we have coming out, has uh, done a lot of work uh, in this area, looking at these mm. groups and cultures around the world uh, that um, where hallucinations are still very much a part of the culture. Uh, but all that's to say that you know social media and the the diminishing literacy may not necessarily uh, also um, go hand in hand with an, an increase in hallucinatory activity. So I just wanted to say that, but there is a real risk even without uh, that happening of, and it's already happening, you know, people more and more are being influenced by um, memes and uh, just small images and, and, and tweets and things like that. And they're not really, in, in a lot of cases, thinking critically about issues. And they're they're being programmed to think certain ways about concepts that they don't have any deep understanding of at all. Uh, and so, yeah, there is that risk. I think it's 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 ongoing. It's it's happening. It's it's probably worsening. And um, if we don't do things to mitigate against that, there could be some very negative consequences uh, as people are more and more manipulated to um, supporting the wrong type of leadership. Uh, things could get, you know, worse and worse. And um, we could also see a kind of two tiered society you know, just speculation, you know, on my part, but uh, we could have like an educated, literate elite, if you will, and a um, less educated, less literate uh, group below that, that, uh, that is being, like you said, either manipulated or taken advantage of. And that may have been uh, how things were in the beginning of consciousness, where literacy wasn't necessarily widespread. And some people may have developed some of the features of consciousness prior to others. And um, there's always going to be these people who are uh, in a more of a leadership role. So there's certainly a lot of um, negative potential for um people getting away from literacy and processing ideas in very superficial kinds of ways that we see happening more and more now. Yeah. Literacy is kind of a, a genie in a bottle type thing. It seems, um, I don't know if it was Terrence McKenna or Marshall McLuhan, but they had this story about Thomas Aquinas and essentially he could read in his head with his internal, you know, voice and now that makes sense that you're saying that the bicameral people did not have the inner voice, but they had the inner God voice because 
he could read and he could read what was on the page and then they'd take the book away and he could tell them like what was on the page or whatever. And that was like a big deal. People like their minds were blown because they didn't have that internal dialogue. Mm -hmm. We see these Um, changes extending through the middle ages and it's, it's not something that suddenly everyone was conscious and that was, uh, that was the end of it. There was a decline of consciousness like you're proposing uh, as a possible future, uh, you know, during the dark ages. And um, again, based on things like literacy and things of that nature, education. So we certainly could, uh, we could revert. It's certainly possible depending on where, where civilization goes from here. Mm-hmm. McLuhan had this interesting, so McLuhan's whole thing, and I definitely recommend, uh, I won't go too deep into this because I know you're not um, well-read in McLuhan, I guess. I I definitely recommend checking him out because if you can bridge the gap between Mm -hmm. those two, like there's definitely some some meat there. Um, But McLuhan had, his whole thing was that TV and electronic media are re-tribalizing and that was his way of saying, like, headed back to a bicameral way of being. And, um, yeah, so I won't go too far into why why he thought that. But he had this interesting distinction. He said that essentially, I'll, I'll paraphrase it for this conversation, bicameral people uh, are very sub- subject to rumors. Like, they'll, like... Uh, a rumor will really get a bicameral person like mm-hmm. easily where we're not as subject to that. We can kind of like piece out like how likely that is or how rational mm-hmm. that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially <laughs> you can sell, uh, what would you, what would you call uh, like modern consciousness? You could sell a modern man on anything like uh, they're sub they're subject to a good sales pitch and I guess I don't even necessarily understand why that's true, but it's, I guess it's a trick of rationalization. It's like if you can find the person's values and you can walk them through why that product like fulfills that need and that value, like you're essentially like driven to like, I rationally need that. You know what I mean? It gets to some of the more nuanced aspects of James's theory and this whole idea of what's called external authorization, that by having thousands of years of responding to externally perceived voices that were coming from our right hemisphere, we're sort of predisposed to to look uh, for others to tell us what to do. Now, this predisposition that we see in bicameral mentality probably has its roots even deeper in our ancient history uh, because we would, you know, we're hierarchy, hierarchy based primates that would follow an alpha male kind of thing. Uh, and so this is, this goes way back, but was manifested in bicameral man- mentality in these voices and hierarchies. And so we're still predisposed to look for solutions and answers outside of ourselves and, different sales techniques engage, you know, a lot of almost like what you might call a conversational hypnosis. And um, one of the things I've noticed a lot that people seem to be very drawn to, you see this all over the internet, 
is just um, wild speculation. And they just, you have to develop a certain level of critical thinking skills to not be sucked in by that. And about, you know, 50, 60% of what I see is just pure speculation and just nonsense. It's just garbage, you know, and, um, but people are really drawn to it. And, and it gets to another thing that we seem obsessed with is um, the ability to pr- predict the future. And we were constantly, you know, maybe we're scanning the horizon for potential threats and things like that, but we're um, always wanting to know what's ahead. And so you see all these articles every day about what the stock market is going to do or what sports team is going to take what action next with what player or whatever. And it's garbage. You know, nobody has any idea. No one knows what's going to happen with the stock market tomorrow. And this is something that's been proven by many, many economists and Nobel laureates that all of these type of market predictions are just complete garbage but people are addicted to them and the people putting them out know that people uh, are obsessed with this kind of material. And so part of developing one's own consciousness is being able to recognize these different things and being able to parse, you know, facts from, um, you know, legitimate speculation and then just pure nonsense that nobody knows. They're just guessing. And uh, you'll see people guessing and guessing and guessing, and they're wrong most of the time. But when they're right, you know, they make a big deal out of it. And people see them as a type of uh, God, you know, uh, telling them what to do, telling them what to invest in and, and uh, when to buy and when to sell or, you know, all these kind of things. And so there's certainly a lot that people could do in their own lives to become better educated to those kind of things, less susceptible and less easily manipulated by all of those kind of um, strategies. And there's one other book, you've mentioned McLuhan, but there's another book that kind of resonates with James's theory that's very popular and it's called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And he did a number of experiments and studies going back decades showing the differences between these two types of thinking. And really the book could have been called thinking non-consciously and consciously. So thinking fast is what he's talking about is our non-conscious brain processes that are making snap judgments and determinations and that generally serve us well, but sometimes can mislead us. And then thinking slow, if we read his book, looking at it that way is uh, conscious, modern, introspective, conscious thought. And so if you read James and then read Thinking Fast and Slow, you can see some of these ideas sort of brought to life in experiments where it shows that we have this non-conscious way, mode of thinking and a conscious mode of thinking. So there's some definite um, overlap with those ideas. Very cool. Um, yeah, that the whole external need for kind of, you know, validation is probably like an artifact of how social we are, but okay. So earlier I want to get to, 
um, the book you're working on right now. But one last thing, because it ties into what we were just talking about. Earlier, you had mentioned computational offloading, essentially, which is like your mm-hmm. ability to do simple arithmetic is diminished by your easy access to a calculator. So we offload a lot of mental work and mental tasks. And now memory is like a really big one now um, to, uh, to technology. Right. Um, and I think like photos and videos are a great example of like, once you watch the photo of a memory or the video of a memory, like it's hard to remember the actual experience anymore. It's like, now I just remember that third person perspective. Mm -hmm. What do you think where like, I think this is kind of relevant to where we were at, at that point in the conversation too. So I'm trying to like pull that back a little bit. Like, I guess, what are we, what are we offloading to technology? Like, well, we can see even now it's changing so rapidly where if you use uh, Gmail, for example, it, 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 it first started with just quick suggested responses to people's emails, like, got it, thanks, or whatever. And um, now it's predicting the end of your sentences. So it'll kind of predict, the AI will predict what you want to say, and it will suggest the rest of the sentence. And as that continues, people are going to have less and less of a need. Well, first it started with just spell checkers. You know, I used to be able to spell everything perfectly, you know. And um, over time, there was just less of a need. And uh, I didn't have to worry about, I mean, I, I, I grew up when there were no spell checkers, you know. I just knew how to spell. And um, I've seen it in myself as I don't need that as much. I've lost uh, a little bit of that skill. And people will have more and more of their sentences completed for them and things written for them. And it sometimes, you know, if you're good at writing, sometimes you don't always realize how difficult writing is for a lot of people. Uh, it's extremely difficult for some people to put put words into coherent sentences and express thoughts uh, in, in written form. And so, yeah, the more that AI starts taking over these functions, the less people are going to need to write themselves. And that, in turn, is going to have an impact on thought. And all of these things are related. And there's so much that's been written and talked about on the relationship between thought and language since Jane's first published his book. And all of these things really bolster his arguments. Um, and, and certainly these things are changing. We don't see it, we don't notice it, but it's changing all around us at a pretty rapid pace. Mm. So it's like, it's kind of like we're offloading our, our intelligence. Yeah. Our consciousness, uh, in some sense. And, um, so, you know, I think there will be people that will continue to develop the features of consciousness that James and others have outlined. And um, there'll be others. Well, there are others who who don't. And you can I mean, people sometimes are shocked with the idea that we learn consciousness differently. But um, if you think about it, 
it's kind of a it's kind of a uh, distasteful idea for a lot of people because we really want to feel like everyone is the same in, in every possible way. But if we look at certain certainly certain uh, developmentally disabled people, then you can measure the differences in consciousness versus pick your favorite, you know, entrepreneur, uh, whether it's Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Elon Musk or whoever it is. Um, certainly they're uh, processing things differently than other people are. There's no doubt about it. You know, they're, they're uh, able to uh, develop the features of consciousness in, in profoundly different ways. And the goal would be to identify those things because it's happening kind of more randomly now. And there's certainly a relationship with intelligence, but there's more to it than just intelligence. And uh, if we could get a better idea that consciousness is learned and not innate, then it would we could study it more and we could teach it more effectively is the idea. Mm. But right now it's not, we're not doing that. And mm -hmm. as you said, the opposite is taking place. People are, are uh, going in the opposite direction. Uh, some people, some people, mm -hmm. there's, there's a big spectrum that we're talking about here. And there's people who are, who are highly conscious and people who are minimally conscious. Mm-hmm. Um, just something to look into for, for you or anyone listening. Um, Jaron Lanier is on this kind of, uh, he was like a virtual reality pioneer in the eighties. Um, he's kind of against the whole social media kind of manipulation model. Like the, the business model is manipulation. Essentially you're paying to have your content go to people that, they don't even know it's relevant to them, but the algorithm knows it's relevant to them. And you're like, you're reinforcing this kind of like maybe node that's on the edge of their like awareness. And you're like, yes, like that, like, like you're the external confirmation I'm, I'm paying to confirm that. Um, and his whole thing is that everyone makes AI to be this like godlike figure, which it's interesting because the you know the whole right hemisphere godlike figure thing of bicameral people, but everyone's making it to be this like thing that's going to surpass human mm -hmm. abilities. And he's saying based on how complex and like amazing our brains are, that's pretty much impossible. And that like he, he I think he laid out three different ways that it could happen. But the one that sticks out to me is that most likely what's happening or the only way that it can really happen is if humans lower their own self image, their own self concept to be smaller than artificial intelligence and allow yourself to be manipulated. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes to what you're saying. It's like, you kind of have to write your own and it's funny. You have to say, right. You have to kind of construct your own, self-concept and consciousness um but it takes work too you can't offload everything you know and conveniences are nice but yeah but yeah okay so um conversations on consciousness and the bicameral mind what what was kind of this endeavor and when did you start 
And yeah, yeah. so um, it actually started uh, at the beginning of the the lockdowns with the pandemic, and I was I was looking to um, start another project. And the Julian Jane Society, we've published uh, four books so far. For those people that have read Jane's and kind of want to learn more, there's so much more to learn about the theory beyond his original book and all of the new evidence that has been accumulated that supports his ideas and delving into his theory, looking at different cultures like ancient China and Tibet and testing his ideas in these other cultures. Um, there's, there's just a wealth of new information that we've put together in, in these books. And so I was thinking, what, what can I do that uh, doesn't involve a lot of library research and, and things like that? And we had been uh, working on a documentary and we had uh, some interviews that had been done. Um, and I thought, because people still struggle with James's ideas and, and they are at first a little bit difficult, uh, uh, challenging, uh, I thought maybe presenting uh, a lot of his ideas in, in an interview form, in a conversational form, would make them much more understandable for people. So we started with some of, you know, transcribing some of the interviews that had already been done. And then over the following year, I did a, a number of additional interviews with different scholars and from different fields and, you know, anthropology and psychiatry and ancient history and, um, and really extending James's theory into new areas and, and uh, explaining a lot of the new evidence. We have uh, neuroscientists uh, in the book as well and um, presenting these ideas in a, in a really easily understandable conversational format. So um, it took two years, but uh, the book is done. And like you said, it's called Conversations on Consciousness and the Bicameral Mind, and that'll be available in, in just a few months. And we're going to awesome. be uh, yeah, opening it up for pre-orders probably in about probably, – probably by the time someone's watching this, they can pre-order it at julianjanes.org. Okay, sweet. So of the new evidence that's come forth to kind of corroborate um, Jane's theory on consciousness, um, what's the most exciting or the most interesting or unexpected for you? Well, um, I'll just mention a few things briefly. There's been a tremendous amount of more discussion of this relationship between language and consciousness, and we're seeing developmental psychologists who are actually studying children as they learn language and documenting the features of consciousness, or he calls it the levels of consciousness that they attain. This goes really hand in hand with James's predictions. So uh, looking at also cases of children who, who never acquire language and then studying them. Jeannie was the most famous case from the 70s, but there are others. Uh, and really getting to the the nuts and bolts of this relationship between language and consciousness as James defines it as this ability to introspect. Um, we're, we've seen an explosion in research on auditory hallucinations. And one of the first studies that was done was inspired by James's book. And a psychologist said, well, let me look at uh, university students and see if there are more people hallucinating than we, than we knew about. And because hallucinations went from being seen as um, divine revelation 
to mental illness a couple of hundred years ago, people learned to keep these experiences to themselves. So it just simply was assumed that only people with a diagnosis of mental illness heard voices. But we now know that hearing voices is, is found on a spectrum throughout all societies worldwide. Many, many more people hear voices on almost a daily basis than was ever known before. People who you, you know, I always encourage people to talk to their friends and family and do, do your own personal survey. And you'll be surprised if you can gain people's trust, how many people occasionally hear some type of voice. Um, and they function perfectly well in society. And um, others, of course, it becomes more debilitating. And, um, but, but it's, there's been just a tremendous amount of research uh, and also children's imaginary companions, which sometimes involve actual hallucinations. Um, there's been a lot more evidence uh, looking at different cultures that James wasn't able to, primarily uh, looking for bicameral mentality in China and Tibet. And we have um, articles about that and also interviews in the new book. Uh, and then um, I mentioned dreams, but this transition that dreams go through from bicameral or vis visitation dreams to modern conscious dreams, it's something that Jane's had written about, but they didn't uh, include his chapter on dreams in his book because it was getting too long and his second book was never published. Uh, he never completed it. But we have a lecture that get Jane's gave on dreams and I transcribed that and it's included in a book called the Julian Jane's Collection. So people can read his ideas on dreams. Um, we've seen a lot more evidence on preliterate societies and vestiges of bicameral mentality, uh, like hearing voices and communicating with dead ancestors and things like that in these different preliterate societies. That's something that, again, Jane's had delved into, but it wasn't included in his book, but people can read about it. In, in the Julian Jane Society books. Um, and then one of the big ones for me um, was this vindication of Jane's ideas on the neurology of auditory hallucinations, really showing this bicameral right-left hemisphere interaction during auditory verbal hallucinations, just as he predicted. Uh, so we it's gotten to the point now where this really is the consensus view of people who've probably never even read Jane's. They're just psychiatrists and neuroscientists writing about auditory hallucinations saying, yes, it does seem in most cases that it is the language areas of the non-dominant hemisphere being perceived by the language areas of the dominant hemisphere. So it's a right-left bicameral interaction that has been shown in numerous studies in neuroscience. So it's not just ancient history. We can see the bicameral mind in action today. And, and I even recently read uh, a proposal by some neurosurgeons saying for people who have auditory hallucinations that are persistent and debilitating enough that they can't function and that don't respond to uh, medication, they proposed that perhaps severing the corpus callosum or the connection between the brain hemispheres, like 
they did in the um, they did in decades past to tr treat severe epilepsy could uh, perhaps cure these auditory hallucinations. Now, I don't think that's been done, but the fact that it's being proposed based on James's theory is is really uh, pretty exciting to see his theory come that that far in in the ensuing decades. So yeah, a ton of new evidence, and um, we go over a lot of that in the book. And uh, I think for anyone that's read Jane's, uh, I think they're going to find a lot of really interesting material uh, in this latest book that we're publishing right now. So, so the book is called Conversations on Consciousness and the Bicameral Mind. Subtitle Interviews with Leading Thinkers on Julian Jaynes' Theory. So in closing, if you take Julian Jaynes' ideas to be that writing caused a switch from this right hemispheric or maybe evenly spread identity across the brain hemispheres where audio hallucinations or literally the voice of God were commonplace in terms of directives. So if you're just walking through the world and a voice tells you buy the organic grapes and you do so rather than this kind of ego or self narratized version of going through the world that we're used to in America and, and I guess the literate world, then you have to extrapolate that if you see writing as a technology to television, to radio, to the cell phone, to VR, and you have to ask, what does that change about how we identify with the world? And if you take McLuhan's work to be true, then the television world at least brings us back to that ego suppressed way of being and he's McLuhan called it the retribalization of the Western world, which is essentially meaning we're, we're becoming more primitive. We're becoming more tribal. And that's why you see politics getting more tribal. That's why you see, I guess politics is the best example. Uh, but there's also this narrative arising in the media and in psychology and in, um, I guess it's more so culture at large, if there is a mainstream anymore, just saying that uh, destroying the ego with psychedelics or um, supplanting the ego or suppressing it is a good thing. And in some cases and in certain experiences, it is a great thing to understand that there's something beyond it, but completely destroying it doesn't seem to be a great thing. So uh, these ideas have got me very interested and I plan on going deeper and I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you go deeper and just, I guess, reflect on what is literacy and uh, what is information and our do we generate information? Does information generate us? These are some of the fun, ridiculous questions that these heady, overly deep topics bring up, but it also brings up important questions and problems that we can grapple with. So hope you enjoyed and check out the book.